at every point in my life, I've noticed that if you speak your mind and you're strong about it and you say what you believe, there's a small percentage of people that resent that. And the way they deal with it is to try and throw arrows, lies or not, to diminish you. From Politico, this is a special episode of Women Rule. I'm Eliana Johnson, and I cover the White House for Politico. For the most part, most men respect women. But there is a small group of men that if you just do your job and you try and do it well and you're outspoken about it, they resent it. That's Nikki Haley, President Donald Trump's ambassador to the United Nations and probably the most high-profile woman in the Trump administration. During much of the 2016 presidential campaign, Haley was a vocal Trump critic. I think we're seeing it across the country, but yes, Mr. Trump has definitely contributed to what I think is just irresponsible talk. Not too subtle. But Haley has become a real force in the Trump administration. She's often been its leading voice on foreign affairs. We have the right to put our embassy anywhere we want to. And so if the people of the United States have said we want the embassy in Jerusalem, we moved it there and we have every right to do that. So we talked to Haley about a bunch of foreign policy issues, including how she dealt with the fallout from the president's, quote, shithole remark. I don't know what happened in that room, but all of the hype after it was not helpful to anyone. What I found most interesting were her comments, and you'll notice them throughout the podcast, about how the Trump administration views its participation in the United Nations and, in particular, its financial support to the organization. It would be ludicrous to give money to those that go out and speak to the entire world and talk about how awful we are. And I think it's a departure from the traditional way that U.N. ambassadors have approached each country uh, because she does suggest that there is a certain contingency and that the American taxpayer at one point, she says, wouldn't want tax dollars going to countries that are hostile to the United States. She also addressed a rumor spread by the journalist Michael Wolf, the author of the runaway bestseller Fire and Fury, that she is romantically involved with the president of the United States. And Wolf spread this rumor in a particularly kind of noxious way where he said that he didn't have enough proof about this to write it in his book, but he nonetheless told the journalist Bill Maher that the president, he believes, is having an affair and that close readers of his book would be able to figure out who he thinks the president is having an affair with. And many people then jumped to the conclusion that it was Nikki Haley. So we got her to respond to that. It is absolutely not true. It is highly offensive. And it's disgusting. Our interview with Nikki Haley is right after this. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses asking how did you make it and what advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Birch Foundation. And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With support from families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. 
And now, our interview with Nikki Haley. So we are thrilled to have with us uh, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. Thank you so much for being with us. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And we just found out that this is your first podcast interview, I think. It is. I'm excited. And it is my first time hosting, so uh, it's cool for both of us. I just had a couple of background questions for you for listeners who may not know exactly who you are or where you came from. You know, in following your career over the past several years, I've heard dueling accounts of how exactly you got interested in politics. Um, I know you're an, you were an accounting major at Clemson, not the typical uh, avenue to, to governor of South Carolina, ambassador to the UN. But so how did you become interested politically? Was it something you were interested in growing up? Were your parents political? You know, I was never that girl that was into politics, not in school, not in college. That just wasn't my thing. I loved numbers. Accounting was really um, where my passion was. But I think it was really my parents just weighing in on making a difference. They always did. They always used to say um, how blessed we were to be in this country. And the best way to give blessings back is to serve. And one day I was doing the accounting for my parents' business, I was in there and I was complaining how hard it was to make a dollar and how easy it was for government to take it. And my mom said, quit complaining about it. Do something about it. I didn't know you weren't supposed to run against a 30-year incumbent in a primary. Um, But ignorance is bliss. And so I ran for a state house race, um, won, and then the rest is kind of history. What were your interests growing up? Did you have particular hobbies or interests that that sort of grabbed you? Or did one of your parents uh, have more impact on on you than you other? I I know in your book, you talk about the particular ways that your family shaped you. Well, I think you have to look at the fact that we were the only Indian family in a small southern town. So we didn't look like anyone else. No one knew what to make of us. And so it was our job to kind of get them to understand how we were similar to them. But my mom was one of the first female judges in India, but unable to sit on the bench because at that time it was too hard for women. And my father ventured out from India to um, University of British Columbia and became a professor, got his Ph.D. And so when they came to America, their eyes were big. The world was big. And they just wanted to take it on. So I saw it through that lens. And their thought was, if you're blessed to be in this country, the sky is the limit. Make it mean something. And so really, I think that's what shaped me. But I loved tennis. I loved music. I loved, I was always the social one. So I loved being out and about and meeting friends and doing anything that was active. So your parents were hyper-educated Indians. What brought them to the States? It was, they came to tour the United States, and just when my dad was going back, one of his friends said, you can't leave. This is the best country in the world. Why are you doing this? And he said, I don't have a job. And that's when one of the um, colleges in the area offered him a job to teach biology, and that's why we stayed. And it was a small southern town, 2,500 people. You couldn't think about doing something wrong without somebody already telling your mom. Now, is there any particular story behind your mom who had a legal background ending up in the retail clothing business? I understand your parent, your, your, both your parents, right, um, had a clothing store in uh, your small town in South Carolina. I think it was her determination to do something, be something, and make the most of the opportunities of being in this country. She actually had a law degree. She had a special education degree, and she had a business degree. So what happened was she was really missing India. 
And so she brought in some gifts, and in the living room of our home, she started selling gifts out of our home. And then that branched into a small retail center and then into a bigger one. And before it was all over, it was a 10,000-square-foot store that carried high-end women's clothing, men's clothing, shoes. And, you know, she really taught herself the business, but we all learned how to watch her courage and how she pushed through that and really made herself into what was a multimillion-dollar business. So we're, we were all very grateful. I'm going to jump way ahead here, but you've struck me as an interesting political figure because I think you embody what so many Republicans sort of thought was the way the Republican Party was trending, um, which is a party that's more ethnically diverse, more inclusive, more tolerant. This is way before the 2016 election, but instead the party kind of lurched in a different direction with the election of Donald Trump. But you weren't shy about sharing your views during the campaign. Um, You delivered the Republican response to the State of the Union in 2016, and you warned Republicans not to be seduced by Trump's anger. Um, You endorsed Marco Rubio, but Trump crushed everybody in the South Carolina primary. I'm curious what your thoughts are or your takeaways. Did you learn anything that you didn't know sort of about where the Republican Party is um, from Trump's victory first in the South Carolina primary and then in the uh, 2016 election? So during that election, I really saw and still see to this day the Republican Party being one that's very diverse, that very patriotic, one that really wants to change with the times and move ahead in a way that lifts all people up. And I still think that we are part of that party. When I gave the response, and I didn't say Trump, I said the angriest voices. And what I was at that time, if you remember, the political world was so toxic. And it was the left and the right. It's gotten so much better, right? (laughs) But it's all kind of built up from there, which is unfortunate. But it was very toxic. And so I was basically saying, don't let your responses be on anger. Bad things happen when you respond by anger. And so we saw it with the left and the right. So that was actually a caution sign um, on how you have to be measured. And that's because we were just coming off the cusp of the church shooting we had had in Charleston. I was going to say, yeah, you had personal experience with it. I know what anger can do and how it can build up and how dangerous it can be. And so it was really just trying to calm the situation. Having said that, the Republican Party still should be the party of diversity, the party of economic growth, the party of um, creativity, the party of really building everyone up, lifting everyone up without thinking government's the answer. I'm not giving up on that. Because I still think that's real. And I know that we've got a lot of distractions out there. But at the end of the day, if we don't allow anyone else to define the Republican Party and we start to prove who the Republican Party is, I think we'll get that. You were pretty candid during your confirmation hearings as um, for this job, the U.N. ambassadorship, that you're relatively new at the whole foreign policy thing. Uh, I'm really curious how you've gotten yourself up to speed and sort of um, educated yourself about foreign policy. Is there anything that you've read that's um, that you found particularly illuminating? Any people who you talk to regularly who you felt have helped educate you? you know, I've read a lot. I mean, that was the answer to everything. So this has felt like a big crash course, but I love it. And I am a fast learner, and especially when it's something I love. And so I've had my experts sit down with me on every part of the world. But I've also talked to amazing people like Henry Kissinger and Condoleezza Rice and John Bolton, Madeleine Albright. I mean, today I met with Rudy Giuliani about security issues. So I'm always trying to talk to people where I can get their insight. Is there anything that one of them, uh, one of those people has told 
you that's really changed the way you think about how you approach the job? I think Henry Kissinger has had the biggest um, biggest part of my learning curve because, you know, in this world, whether it's politics or whether it's foreign policy, you tend to pass judgment, whether you should or not, on what you think is right and wrong. And what Dr. Kissinger has taught me is get into the shoes of the other person. Think like the Russians. See what the motivations of the Russians are. Then decide how you're going to act. Think like the Chinese. What are the Chinese worried about? Why would they be making that decision? And when you start to make decisions based on what they're thinking, then you all of a sudden have a conversation that they can relate to. And so I think I've really learned to negotiate in a way that if I understand their concerns, but I know where I want to go, I can get them to where I need them to be. You were, in terms of your outlook, in some ways pretty far away from the president who you're representing at the U.N., and at times you guys have disagreed. I'm curious how you handle your disagreements with the president, um, which sometimes are, are public. We really haven't had that many disagreements. I agree with most everything that he's done policy-wise. I think that obviously people see that he could, you know, in the way he projects himself could be different possibly, but that's every person. There is no perfect person. But we both love this country. And we both think that it's time for a change. And we both think that countries have taken us for granted for a a long time. We both think that we have to really look out for America's security. We both think that we have to be an international player in the world, that we have to fight for human rights, that we have to fight for all that is good, that we have to continue to fight for terrorism. So we do agree on the basic rules of it. I just have one way of dealing with it, and he has another. But we get along great, and I agree with most everything that he's done. I'm curious about what has been reported as a disagreement just earlier today regarding whether or not Jerusalem is, quote, unquote, on the table for peace negotiations. So the president said at Davos, um, quote, we took Jerusalem off the table, so we don't have to talk about it anymore. And he seemed to be referring to whether or not um, the borders of Jerusalem or the area of Jerusalem is on the table for negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, You told the UN Security Council earlier today that the U.S. had done nothing to prejudge the final um, borders of Jerusalem. So what gives here? It's actually the same thing. So what we decided in the National Security Council meeting when we were deciding on the move of um, the embassy to Jerusalem was what do we need to do? Well, we had the Israelis pulling one side. We had the Palestinians pulling the other. So what we said was the American people for years have asked for the embassy to be moved to Jerusalem. So all we did is the will of the American people, and we took Jerusalem off the table. We didn't say what their borders should or shouldn't be. We didn't determine anything on the holy sites. We said that the borders could only be decided between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and we stand by that. But what we did say is we have the right to put our embassy anywhere we want to. And so if the people of the United States have said we want the embassy in Jerusalem— We moved it there, and we have every right to do that. But really, at the end of the day, the peace deal is going to come down to the compromise between Palestinians and Israelis, and they are going to be the ones that decide the borders of Jerusalem, not us. So what do you think the president means when he says we took Jerusalem off the table so we don't have to talk about it anymore? It seemed to me that he was referring to the borders of Jerusalem and an agreement, and, and he went on to say that 
they should be thanking us because this was one of the most contentious issues. Actually, what it is, we took it off the table because we didn't want that to be the one point they kept holding on to, that they were pulling us on both sides. What we're saying is both of you need to come to the table. Both of you need to talk past Jerusalem and an embassy, and you need to start talking about how Palestinians and Israelis are going to live together. If that's two-state, that's two-state. If it's one-state, it's one-state. If it's if you decide the borders for Palestinians are one place and, and Israelis the other, if you decide it, we will support it. But basically, that's what he was saying was don't use the United States as a um, as a tug-of-war because we're not going to allow that to happen. So we took Jerusalem off the table. You were the cabinet member uh, probably most affected by the president's alleged remark that he wanted fewer immigrants from shithole or shithouse, whatever the uh, obscenity was um, from those sorts of countries and more from countries like Norway. Since you work very closely with African ambassadors to the U.N., what was their reaction to this remark and how did you deal with your colleagues um, in the fallout? So I met with all of the African countries uh, last week and sat down with them and told them about how much the United States respects them and how we partner with them on anything from PEPFAR um, and and the money that we've invested or the fight against terrorism that we do with them and development and all of those types of things. So we really tried to bring it back to the relationship side. I don't know what happened in that room, but... All of the hype after it was not helpful to anyone because at the end of the day, we respect every country. We need every country and every country needs us. It's mutual. But that respect is really, really important. And we don't ever want to do anything to disrespect our relationship with any country, African or otherwise. And so I don't know what happened in that room, but my job was to make sure they understood that we value them, that we want to continue working with them and that they should consider us a friend. We'll be right back with more Women Rule, but first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With support from families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. I want to jump back to the Israeli-Palestinian issue for a second. Uh, you vetoed a U.N. resolution calling on the U.S. to reverse its decision to move the embassy. Um, and on the day of the vote, the president threatened to cut off foreign aid to any country that supported that resolution. He made a pretty Trumpian statement telling White House reporters um, that, they go ahead, vote against us. Um, we'll save a lot. We don't care. Um, But you also sent a letter to your colleagues um, indicating that the president had asked you to report back to him on which countries um, voted in favor of the resolution and tweeted that you would be taking names. That seems to have become one of your your favorite phrases. Um, Will there actually be any retributive action against the countries that supported that resolution? There doesn't seem to have been any thus far. I don't know. You know, I can tell you that's not ever going to be the factor that decides what our relationship with a country is or not. That will be a factor. And when you look at how much the United States contributes to the United Nations, when you look at how generous the United States is to many nations, whether it's for health reasons, for development reasons, whether it's economic, whether it's terrorism and security reasons, all of that, the United States has always been an unbelievable um, generous country to the world. But what we don't expect is for the entire United Nations to come back 
and all of a sudden try and isolate us from making a decision we had every right to make to decide where we put our embassy. And by the way, if you go to any country, we put our embassy in the capital every time. And so for us to move it to Jerusalem, it was our right. And for them to single us out and vote against us in a way that didn't change anything, didn't do anything outside of just try and criticize the United States, of course we're going to look back. You don't sit there and give money to someone who abuses you. You sit there and and ha- and and have a relationship with those that understand and appreciate you and you appreciate them back. So what we're trying to do with the United Nations is don't take us for granted. You see that in the fact that we're doing UN reform, that we're really changing the way peacekeeping is done. It's about really going after the value of a taxpayer's dollar. Where would they want us to spend? How would they feel good about it? Would they feel good about us giving money to a country that's, um, you know, basically kicking us every chance they get and going against us on every single turn? No. They have to go and understand that if they want a relationship with us, there has to be a respect. And if that respect isn't going to be there, that money doesn't have to be there. So it doesn't sound to me like you're ruling out the possibility of some kind of retributive action, but it doesn't seem like you're, you're saying it's particularly likely. You know, I think it's one element. We would never want to sit there and decide our relationship based on one vote, ever. Um, we have to look at a lot of different factors. It has to be the factors of what's in the best interest of the United States. What are we doing in coalition with others? How does this help us in the long run? But also, you know, do we want to have a relationship with them? But when you have... You know, the Palestinians who basically last week, President Abbas criticized the United States, criticized our country, criticized our president, and then turned around and said that you're getting ahead of me here. (laughs) The Oslo deal was dead and that we no longer needed to be a part of the peace process. And then they have their handout wanting millions of dollars. Why would we do that? We would not do that. It's, it would be ludicrous to give money to those that go out and speak to the entire world and talk about how awful we are. So, you know, it's just common sense. This is something that every person at home would sit there and look at before they give to a charity. They're going to make sure it's a charity that they believe in. It's the same with us. Before we give to, a, to an organization or a country, we're going to make sure it's something that we believe in. And we're not going to believe in anyone that hates on America. You recently pushed to eliminate funding for the U.N. Relief and Works Agency. Um, I understand there was a pretty heated battle within the administration that pit um, you pushing for the elimination of the funding against the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who wanted to maintain the funding. Um, Why were you pushing to eliminate funding to an agency that um, helps Palestinian refugees? I think it's something that a lot of people have trouble understanding. And, And I understand if they go by the narrative that the Palestinians give, yes, it sounds like a terrible thing. But this is a political arm of the Palestinians. This is one that allows their schools to educate about, um, that basically allows violence towards Israelis. This is an agency that's very top-heavy, that wants to give all its money to administration and less of education and health care to the people that really need it. It needs major reform. But let's go back to what I just said. This is also a group that has criticized our president, criticized our country, not welcomed our vice president when he came and said that they wanted us no part to nowhere around. So when we had it was the Palestinian authority that didn't welcome the, uh, the Mike Pence, the vice president, not the U.N. Relief and Works Agency. But right? they're connected. 
And everybody here at the U.N. knows the Palestinian ambassador. That's all he focuses on is UNRWA. And so what we said was, okay, first of all, and we were in agreement when it came to the Security Council, the National Security Council and Secretary Tillerson, all of the administration was in agreement. We can't keep doing things as usual with the Palestinians. And so we all agreed on cutting the money. It was how much do you cut? And so it's a 50 percent cut. And now they're realizing how much the United States did before they used to abuse us and they used to talk bad about us and they used to say all these things but hold their hand out. And all the other countries that voted against us, 128, we're now saying, okay, you pay for it. If you had no problem voting against us, then you pay for it because they can. Why is it always the United States that has to pay? We're always going to do humanitarian things. We're always going to take care of um, countries that struggle. But we're going to do it when there's a mutual respect. We're not going to do it when it's not. I just got back from South Sudan and Democratic Republic of Congo. Our focus very much is on the standard of living for refugees and how we can improve their life and how we can make sure that they can repatriate back. We did the same for the Syrian refugees. We want to help people. That's who the United States is. That's who we are to our core, is that we look at human life as something that's valuable. But we're not going to go and beg someone to abuse us and then pay money for it. That would be ridiculous. So this really is just common sense. If the Palestinians don't want anything to do with us, that means they don't want our money either. The Palestinians have essentially said that in the wake of this embassy move that they will not take part in a peace process that the U.S. is taking part in. So how can there be a a peace process that the U.S. is taking any part in if we're only dealing with with one side? If the Palestinians come back, there will be a peace process. We are totally willing to have the Palestinians come back if they want to be respectful. And we're totally willing to get them to a place where they have a better quality of life. They deserve it. So I understand I understand precisely what you're saying, that the U.S. is willing for there to be a peace process, but it doesn't sound like there is a peace process right now. There was a peace process. There is a peace process. There are talks being had on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, that the United States is having. We're not giving up on a peace process. But don't make a mistake in that we're going to beg someone for a peace process. Both sides have to be willing. Both sides have to participate. This isn't for the United States. This is for the people of Israel and the Palestinians. If they want it, we will be there. If they don't want it, then life will go on as it is now. So I want to transition and talk to you a little bit about some issues that um, affect women. We were chatting about this before we started recording, but um, I sort of don't like the idea that there are particular women's issues because I I tend to think that all issues and all foreign policy issues are women's issues. But um, I wanted to ask you about some issues that are that we conventionally think of as women's issues and about the Me Too movement in particular. Now that we've seen this movement play itself out for several months, do you have any concern about um, overreach and backlash or or backlash to the movement? And I ask this because I was listening to uh, Condi Rice on a podcast with David Axelrod. Um, She's in this in this uh, forum, too, now, and she's podcasting. Um, But she said that she has a concern that 
women are going to be portrayed or treated as snowflakes. And I should note that she said she thinks this is a good moment and that we're having this conversation. But she said she had some concern that women are going to be portrayed as or treated as snowflakes and that there's some risk of men beginning to fear, including women at the highest levels um, in professional settings. So I wonder if you share any of those concerns or... Um, you know, what your thoughts are on the Me Too movement in, in particular? Well, I think, first of all, going back to what your initial comment was about women's movement or things like that, I have always just shied away from labels because growing up as a young Indian girl in Bamberg, I was a whole lot of labels that didn't match everyone else. And so I always shied away from that because my mom always said, don't talk about how you're different, talk about how you're similar. Now, having said that, The fact that women have found the power of their voice, I applaud them for that. That's something that women should do in every industry, in every issue. It's something that's important. I think women are balanced by nature. I think they prioritize well. And I think when they use the power of their voice, they move the ball. So in this Me Too movement, I think it was something that needed to happen because all of a sudden it woke up everyone, whether in the corporate world, whether it's in theater, whether it's in um, entertainment, whether it's in politics, it woke up everyone to the fact that don't be so arrogant that you think you can abuse other people. That's the good side of it. We have to be very careful now to be responsible in the fact don't abuse it. Because the second you abuse it, the people you're hurting the most are the survivors, the ones that really got out there and tried to say something. What do you mean by abuse? We don't want to have to you know, have every person that if someone, you know, that they take it to where they call it sexual abuse. These women that have come out had horrific things happen to them. What we need to do is make sure that we only exploit the things that are real and that really happened. If you ever, and this is true for anyone, if you ever accuse someone of something and it's not true, That can be damaging to them, and it can be damaging to you. So we just need to make sure we're responsible with it, that we know that we have proof, that we know that we have the ability to have its back. Because if we do, the Me Too movement will continue to stay strong. If we start having those that abuse it and try and make it broader than what it is, then you could find that whole thing fall apart. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd sort of wondered if that fake Rolling Stone article and there were some other uh, reports around that – it sort of silenced some of these reports because there was a sense that women wouldn't be believed if they came out since there were actual fake reports um, and, and created a kind of toxic dynamic. And we have to be responsible with that. But, you know, you look at the other part of women's voices. Look at all the gymnasts that came forward, you know, in the hearing recently and and calling on their athletic trainer that had abused so many of them. That's a good thing when their voices come forward. But... We have to be responsible and make sure that those cases that come forward are real and they're accurate and they actually move the ball to making life better for everyone. We never want to see women abused, but we also want to be responsible enough that men don't start to resent us because we're going out there and and showing the power of our voice. There's a balance there. I'm curious. You turned a lot of heads when you you told CBS maybe a month ago that um, when a few women who have accused the president of sexual harassment deserve to have their voices heard as well. Did you get any internal pushback in the administration or from the president for saying that? I spoke to the president later that day. He called me and he said I did a good job. Okay. Um, 
So I want to ask you about a pretty salacious illusion that Michael Wolff, the author of the now famous or infamous Fire and Fury book, um, didn't quite have the cojones to make in his book um, or outright, but he told the comedian and television host Bill Maher that he's pretty sure, not sure enough to write in his book, that the president is having an affair and that close readers of his book would be able to figure out who the president is having an affair with. So Wolf writes in the book that, quote, the president had been spending a notable amount of private time with Haley, that's Nikki Haley, on Air Force One and was seen to be grooming her for a national political future. Um, I don't think you exactly have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out what he's insinuating, but I'd like to get your response to um, that insinuation. It is absolutely not true. It is highly offensive, and it's disgusting. You know, if you look at what my, and I've said this before, it amazes me what people will do and the lies they will say for money and power. And in politics, it's rampant. But here you have a man who's basically saying, I've been spending a lot of time on Air Force One. I have literally been on Air Force One once. And there were several people in the room when I was there. He says that I'm talking a lot with the president um, in the Oval about my political future. I've never talked once to the president about my future, and I am never alone with him. So the idea that these things come out, that's a problem. But it goes to a bigger issue that we need to always be conscious of. At every point in my life, I've noticed that if you speak your mind and you're strong about it, and you say what you believe, there's a small percentage of people that resent that. And the way they deal with it is to try and throw arrows, lies or not, to diminish you. And I think women have dealt with this a long time. I don't think it's just in politics. I think it's in corporate. And I think it's in all aspects. But there is that, you, for the most part, most men respect women. But there is a small group of men that if you just do your job and you try and do it well, and you're outspoken about it, they resent it. And they think the only option is to bring you down. So I wanted to ask you about sort of this type of rumor, which I think falls into a certain category, which is that of the successful woman who has to sleep her way to the top, which I think is hurtful and damaging. But how do you, as a powerful woman, probably the most I think, visible and outspoken woman in the president's cabinet um, handle those types of rumors. Um, I don't think anybody would call that assault in a formal way, but it is a real challenge that strong women, I think, face in the workplace. Well, you know, I hope that other women stand up and say this is wrong. I hope other men stand up and say this is wrong. I hope the media doesn't let this blow up because this isn't something that's just happened as a cabinet member. I saw this as a legislator. I saw this when I was governor. I see it now. I see them do it to other women. And the thing is, when women work, they prioritize, they focus, and they believe if you're going to do something, do it right. And others see that as either too ambitious or stepping out of line. And the truth is, we need to continue to do our job. And if that means they consider it stepping out of line, fine. And if that means they're going to throw stones, people see lies for what it is. Do I like it? No. Is it right? No. Is it going to slow me down? Not at all. 
any time this has happened, it only makes me fight harder. It only makes me work harder. And I do it for the sake of other women that are behind me because they should never think that they have to put their head down and cower out of fear that someone's going to do something to you. If you're doing the right thing, you always win at the end of the day. I know we've got a wrap here because you've got a tight schedule, but before we go, I'm curious, are, are there ways in which you think you approach your job differently because you're a woman or because you're a minority woman? You know, I think um, I've always been something. You know, I was, whether I was, you know, the first Indian American female governor or whether I was the first female governor or whether I was the youngest governor, I have always been different than everyone else. But I don't focus on it because I know at the end of the day, we all love America. Do you think it informs you in helpful ways? I mean, I I think you're right in that you've gotten a lot of positive and negative attention for those traits. But do you think your experience has shaped you in ways that, um, you know, change the way that you approach your job or um, shape the way that you you look at your travels abroad? I absolutely think it does because I'm more sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to those that have challenges. But I also know that based on everything I've done in my life, challenges can be overcome. And you have to push through it. And you help those in need. Whenever someone's struggling, you lift them up so that they can do for themselves. And, you know, so I think over at the United Nations, any country, any group of people, anyone that's suffering, I I feel a need to try and do everything I can to help them. Um, but I also am proud of the United States. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of my parents. I'm proud of how I was born and raised. And so all of those things came together to make me who I am. And so the best thing I can do is go back to what my mom said. The best way to appreciate your blessings is to give back. So I'll never stop giving back. It's what I do. It's what I enjoy. And um, it's, and it's been an honor of a lifetime. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Haley. Uh, it was wonderful to have you. Great. Thank you for having me on.